0: Open your Bibles with me. <clears throat> we have um, a bit of ground to cover today, and um, but I'm excited. As we were just worshiping here at the end, I was thinking of this. Um, what was the song we sang at the end? I will build my life upon your word. It is a firm foundation. I will trust in you alone, and I will not be shaken. And I was thinking... To the outsider, we must seem like such an odd people. Christians must look so weird, especially if you walk into a church gathering, you're like, what is this? They're raising their hands. They're singing these words. Who sings things like this? And I was thinking, you know what? We are a different people. And, I, and the scripture in First Peter came to mind, and just by way of, of rolling into this morning, First Peter chapter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And I was thinking, gosh, we are a different people, are we not? But it's a wonderful, a wonderful thing that we are different This morning, we're going to begin our series um, officially in the book of Matthew. The last couple of weeks, um, we heard from Rick, and he laid just a, a wonderful kind of overview of the theology of the kingdom of God. And we've been the last number of months through the book of Acts, and as I was prayerfully considering and as we were discussing, Lord, where do we go? What are you speaking? This is how we, as a team, determine What we do and how we teach is we really seek the Lord. And it's like, Lord, what are you speaking to us? Where do you want us to be on Sundays as we gather? And and what is it that you're wanting to teach us? And I I had a thought that came to my mind, and it was this. We spent um, three, four months just teaching through the book of Acts under the theme of the power and the proclamation of the gospel through the witness of the church. And I was thinking that Christianity is a two-sided coin. On the one hand, it is the verbal testimony That Jesus Christ, as Kevin so wonderfully gave us a quick glimpse of, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that He lived, that He died, but that He rose and He lives today. That's the testimony of the church and a call to those who are outside of Christ to come to know Him and to receive Him. And I thought, but the so if the one side of the coin is the verbal testimony, then the other side of the coin must be as Scripture. Teaches, And as we're going to look through the book of Matthew, the other side of the coin must be the visible witness. So we have the verbal testimony and we have the visible witness, and the two go hand in hand, and they must be so. And so we're looking now, we're going to spend some months through the book of Matthew, and we're going to be looking at the kingdom of God, and we've titled this series of the Gospel of Matthew, Not of This World. And the reason that we've titled it as that is because, as I said a moment ago, we are a distinct and different people, that we are not of this world, that the things that we desire, the things that we go after, that we seek after, the values that we have, we're called to be otherly. And I love that text from 1 Peter because he speaks not only of our distinctiveness, but also of the fact that that we have been transferred out of a different life and into something new. We've been transferred from darkness. So we have the verbal testimony and the visible witness. As Christians who live on this side of the cross, this side being on this side of the resurrection, on this side of the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The question should be, what does this visible witness look like? That's what we need to be asking ourselves. What is this life that I now live, what should that look like? Let me ask you a question. Should it look like every other life that's lived outside of Christ? Should it look similar to the life that you lived before you received Christ? Should your values be the same as the values of the rest of this culture? Should the things that we go after, the way that we think, the things that we believe, the desires of our heart, the aim of our life, should they be the same or should they be different? They should be different. These are all questions that have practical life-related answers and questions that I believe we must be asking ourselves if we are not already. We're talking about a radical way of living. And as we spoke a few number of weeks back now, that word radical, it's intentionally used when we talk about the way that we live. It's radical because it's affecting the fundamental essence of who we are. That's that's what it means to be radical. When something is radical, the essence of what it is is changed. And is that not true of the Christian life? The essence of the Christian life is changed. So we live a radical life. And I was thinking too, why is that true? Because the means by which this life was secured for us was completely radical. The means by which Jesus Christ rescued us, as scripture tells us, and transferred us This is intense and radical terminology. And so the means by which we were secured, and therefore it would be reasonable to think that if we were saved and transferred in a radical way, should we not then live in a radical way? In a completely otherly way? And as we studied Colossians, we saw what Paul said, and when he uses the terminology that we were rescued, that we were transferred from the kingdom of what? Do you remember? Darkness. The kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the sun. So here we see Paul now is presenting two ages, which is what Rick has spoke of the last couple of weeks. The one age, which is the age of darkness, the other is the age of the kingdom of the sun. And scripture teaches us that we have been transferred as Christians from one to the other. Does that make us better? No, but it makes us different. And why is that distinction important? Because the differences speak of the excellencies of who God is. The distinctiveness of this people group, of us, of us collective, speaks of the excellency, of the goodness, of the grace, of the mercy, of the love, of the faith, of the supremacy, of everything, every other adjective that you can think of to describe the character of God are all displayed now through us as a people, at least they ought to be. And so this morning, as we begin in the book of Matthew, I want to look at Matthew chapter 1. And at first glance, it might seem like somewhat of uh, of a boring portion of Scripture, if there is such a thing, for the carnal mind, right? Right? Just kidding, I'm just kidding. It's, like, it's, the, it's, it's Matthew's genealogy is what we're going to look at today in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. But before we get there, I want to make sure, I'm going to take a moment, and I want to t- actually take a few minutes, and I want to just continue in laying this kingdom theology. Because there was something that I realized that I had never seen before as I began to study and prepare for this series through the book of Matthew. And it was this, that the entire story of the Bible is a kingdom story. And I was blown away when I finally saw this. Oftentimes we think of the kingdom as just beginning somewhere around perhaps the Gospels when it's first presented in terms of the kingdom of God phrase being presented within Scripture. Sometimes we look at it perhaps and we trace it back towards Abraham, maybe David, because David was such a prominent figure within this kingdom understanding but rarely, I don't know, that we actually see that this kingdom imagery is a story narrative that is all-encompassing of Scripture. At the very beginning, it begins in Genesis with this kingdom imagery. You have a ruler, God. You have a people, The first humans, Adam and Eve, did they exist? Yes, they existed. You have a kingdom territory, the garden, created by God, placed his people within. His presence, he walked among them, Scripture tells us. We have his law. Do not eat of this, eat of this. You will work this, you will do this. And so we already begin to see at the onset of the story, the kingdom of God is there and it's present. And as we know, it ends in Revelation with this beautiful kingdom imagery once again. God dwelling with his people, the presence of God. Behold, John says, behold, he writes, the dwelling place of God is now with man. And we have this picture of the new Jerusalem coming from the heavens to the new earth. The bride of Christ, the church, the people of God placed within the new creation to dwell with God, to be his people for him to rule over. And so scripture begins and it ends with this kingdom imagery. But it isn't just the bookends of scripture that we're interested in either because you can look through scripture and you can trace this kingdom all throughout as well. And it's that very thing that Matthew is concerned with in Matthew chapter 1. It isn't just happenstance, but it's intention. It's brilliance on Matthew's part, quite frankly, that he lays out for his readers, and we'll see in just a moment. He lays out for his readers who were predominantly Jewish, who had this understanding of kingdom imagery. And he lays out very intentionally for them the genealogy tracing, tracing from Abraham to Jesus, but I'm getting ahead of myself. You and I today find ourselves in the final chapter of this epic kingdom story. We are a part of this kingdom story. And that is an important, important truth as well. So as I said, I want to just make sure that we're all on the same page. One of the things that I realized as well personally is that um, there seems to be somewhat of of a dearth of, whole Bible teaching on kingdom where all of scripture, as I said, is considered in this narrative. Often we see that as Rick spoke of last week or two weeks ago, we see that it often is emphasized in one particular the kingdom of God is this, one thing. The kingdom of God is this right here in our attempts. And and I believe that the reason that the kingdom understanding that kingdom theology isn't fully well developed, at least in terms of mass teaching is because much like some other important truths within Scripture, it's not explicitly stated in a concrete definition. This is what the kingdom is, but it's implied. There's imagery, there's inference throughout Scripture, and it's on, the onus is on us as Christians to look at, to understand, to study within the whole totality of Scripture the truthfulness of what this is. And so as we've heard the past couple of weeks, what we often find on kingdom theology can be unfortunately overstated to one degree or another, which is why what Rick was saying last week on his Ten Truths of the Kingdom is so beneficial for a high-level flyby of the kingdom, of what it is and, as a result, what it isn't. The kingdom of God is this. The kingdom of God is a mystery, as Rick said last week. It's unseen. It's of another world. It's of another age. And it's only by having been born new by faith that we're able to enter into this kingdom. But once entered, everything changes. Everything changes. It's like becoming a new citizen of a different country. Suddenly your citizenship looks different. The laws that you live by Perhaps the way that the life is lived out can differentiate from one country to another. The way that you do X, Y, and Z, it changes. That is true for you and I today. It has changed. Its values and expressions are not like the country that you came from, perhaps. Some teach that the kingdom of God is the church comprised of individuals within the hearts and minds of those individuals. Some teach that the kingdom of God is ethics and its rules to be lived by. Humanity building God's kingdom as it addresses the social issues of suffering and poverty and other social justice matters. Some see the kingdom of God as solely or primarily as the power and the authority of the king. We advance his rule here on earth through his power over sickness, over demonic authority. And so you can see that if it becomes about one thing, then it is often at the detriment of the others. It becomes heavily tilted to one degree. There was a quote by a a writer and a theologian by the name of Gordon Fee. And although, and I want to give it to you this morning because I, I, I appreciated the um, pointedness of it, of what he says, regarding the kingdom being so heavily important. He says this You cannot know anything about Jesus, anything, if you miss the kingdom of God. That's quite a statement. You cannot know anything about Jesus if you miss the kingdom of God. Why is it so underemphasized, does it seem, at times, if it's so important? And then he goes on to say that you're a zero on Jesus if you don't understand this term. He's not mincing words, is he? And then he says, I'm sorry to say that so strongly, but this is the great failure of evangelical Christianity. We have had Jesus without the kingdom of God and therefore have literally done Jesus in. And so as I said, why is it, if it's so important, Why does it seem to be at times void in terms of the verbal teaching of the church and and the emphasis of how we live and how we talk about the kingdom? And as I said, I think it's because it's not explicitly stated for us in concrete terms. Hey, this is the kingdom. You don't open up to, you know, first chapter of the book of kingdoms where Jesus says, this is the kingdom of God, now do X, Y, and Z. But I believe as we look through the book of Matthew, we're going to begin to see those things, those distinctives. So what is the kingdom? It's important as we set out that we have a good working definition. I was thinking of this. I don't know about you guys. This is the honest truth. When I think of the kingdom, let me ask you, what do you think of? This is what comes to my mind. I'm not kidding. You remember that movie, First Night, back in the 90s, Richard, Richard Gere and... Sean Connery. I don't know what it is, but oftentimes, like when someone says the kingdom, I go to this medieval art. uh, You know, uh, what's it? The Round Table, King Arthur and the Round Table, or I might go to that one. The king, the kingdom, the kingdom, or about this one. Right? Are (laughs) Are you not entertained? Yeah, for those, for those who might be listening at home, I've just shown three pictures, one of Sean Connery, one of Kevin Costner, and one of, uh, what's his name, Russell Crowe in Ridley Scott's early 2000 hit Gladiator. And uh, the women have overwhelmingly favored uh, Kevin Costner, image number two, and uh, those over, over 35, and, those, uh, and all the men have gone for Russell Crowe. So that was just a quick brief for anybody who's listening on the podcast. (laughs) My point is this. I think that kingdom imagery is actually lost on us today. I don't think we have a grid for kingdom imagery. I don't think we have a grid for really conceptualizing when we read this phrase, the kingdom of God, or maybe it's just me. You're going like, no, Matt, you don't have a grid for it. <laughs> that's obvious. <laughs> as modern-day as modern Christians, we don't think in terms of king and kingship and rule and kingdom territory. And I think that's much to our loss because the significance of the kingdom, I don't think it can be understated. And it behooves us to seek understanding further, which is what we're endeavoring to do. But as I said, for the Jews... In Matthew's writings, for those who would hear and those who might read what Matthew would write, they understood kingdom imagery. They understood what he meant when he spoke of David's throne lasting forever. A people who God would secure for himself. It wasn't lost on them. So for a helpful working definition, what I'm going to use and I, and I wanted to do this just to help expand our understanding, um, to broaden it to more of a, of a practical and perhaps applicable usage. I'm going to use a definition that's given by uh, the writer Patrick Schreiner. And he's written a book called The Kingdom of God and the Glory of the Cross. And this is how he defines the kingdom. And I'm going to use it today. The kingdom is this. The kingdom is the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. The kingdom is the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. And he would also add to it that it includes the king's presence as well as the king's precepts. You know what precepts are? There's more kingdom language that we don't understand. It's the law of the king. It's the law of the territory. So the kingdom is the power, the people, the place, the presence, and the precepts of the king. And I appreciated that, and you might take a point of contention with one of those, and that's okay, but in terms of what I'm hoping to do to broaden our understanding of the kingdom and to bring it into a way that's practical and applicable for us, I thought this was really helpful, because what it doesn't do is it doesn't overemphasize one over the other, and it doesn't underemphasize perhaps something that's important and significant. Patrick Schreiner says this that the kingdom must include people namely a king and his subjects the king is the representative of people and the king also provides shelter and safety for the people through his kingdom and it must include a realm for a king without a territory is an enigma in other words it's he's incomplete He's difficult to understand. If we speak of a king that doesn't have an actual place in which he's ruling, then what kind of king is he? Kingship can't be exercised solely as a concept with no physical existence. And then he would go on to say that the kingdom without a people or a place becomes intangible, and it minimizes our understanding, listen to this, of the church's mission whose mission it is to bring people into union with a real king and into a real kingdom. So an underemphasis or an overemphasis of one, it's almost like a table and you're removing a leg from a, from a table or a stool. It topples over in a sense. It's incomplete. So can we see that the kingdom of God is more than just the rule and authority of the king? While that is an important aspect of it, to reduce it, to that one aspect, or to diminish it, we diminish its effects on earth. And in addition, it diminishes our expectation experientially for this life. If it's solely his rule and authority over us, the gospel of the kingdom risks becoming a personal, inward-focused rule, and at worst, a subjective experience determined by each of our own lives if it becomes just about the inward rule, about just the kingdom of God is within our hearts, if it's just about a people, then I think that it's a hazard, a hazard to the king on his throne. Because if it's just about a people, then the, then the, the, the potential is that he's supplanted in what we find as man on his own throne. So we can see that the kingdom being each one together suddenly changes the game for us. We are now a people under the rule and the authority of another, namely God, namely Jesus, whose edict it is that we would live outwardly to portray and to exemplify his rule and extend his kingdom through our submission to him. So the kingdom of God touches all of these things. So look with me now. Let's actually get to the book of Matthew and the time that's left. I want to look at Matthew chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, and I'm going to read the genealogy. You might have thought I might skip it, but no, I will read it. (laughs) I heard that. Whoever said that, I won't look your way. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Let's remember, too, this is the word of the Lord. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz. Yea, Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Ruth, excuse me, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Important article, Yea, David. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel was father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud. And Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. And Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud. And Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan. I think that's how you might pronounce it. And Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Lord, we thank you for the word of God. Lord, today we continue to worship you, through our submission to your word and to your spirit. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to speak to us now as we move through your scripture and we move through to seek understanding and truth, Lord, of what it is that this church, that this people, that this ransomed community is for your kingdom, Lord. We praise you for the word of God, for the enduring word, for the life of the word of God, and for the spirit that gives us understanding. In Jesus' name, we say together, amen. So very quickly, there's, let me say this, there is a lot um, that we won't look at within this genealogy. Obviously, we have many names. Many of these names are amazing people who have done significant and wonderful things as it pertains to this kingdom narrative. Obviously, for the sake of time, we're not going to go through every single one of those. So if you are concerned that we are about to launch into 50 some odd names or however many names were just listed right there, rest assured we're not. But just like I took some broad steps a moment ago through the kingdom, I want to do the same thing with the genealogy. I want to look at more of Matthew's intention, what Matthew was trying to to begin with as he starts with the genealogy at the very beginning and the onset of his book. And I would also say this, um, it's worth your own personal time to look and to study at more in depth of what this genealogy has to offer. And just beginning to scratch the surface, it's really profound. I will say this as well. Um, The very end of that, it talks about the 14 generations. It's actually Matthew, it's thought that there was more of a literary style for the sake of symmetry. So you'll also, you probably go like, oh, wow, it was 14, 14, and 14. It's actually not 14, 14, and 14. Matthew has intentionally left some generations out. And it's thought that that was more for a a literary style style. Um, for the sake of symmetry, as he was communicating it. So that was just a little bit of a side note. I mean, I don't mean to deflate you, you know, but at the same time, you should know there wasn't 14 generations only. Um, but I want to begin with this these first eight words that Matthew opens with, and that's where we will begin as well. He begins with this the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then he says, the son of David the son of Abraham, Matthew opens with such a profound and brilliant first eight words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The word for genealogy in the Greek, those of you who've studied it would know, is the word Genesis. The Genesis of the record of Jesus Christ. So right from the onset, there's the implication that Matthew is bringing, much less resembles that same phrase that's used only a couple of times elsewhere and we find it at the very beginning of the story of the redemption narrative in Genesis. A record of the Genesis. And in Genesis, Moses uses it for the heavens and the earth. And here, Matthew is echoing that same phrase. A record of the Genesis implying that God is doing something new that there's a beginning, much like there was a beginning in Genesis. There's a beginning, but instead of the heavens and the earth, it's Jesus Christ. That's like goosebumps moving up and down my arms. So amazing and so brilliant that Matthew begins this way. That wasn't by happenstance. That was intentional. The genesis of Jesus Christ, and therefore, Placing Jesus as the climax within God's story. Placing Jesus as, as the pinnacle of his storied timeline of this kingdom redemptive narrative. He's laying a foundation and an expectation for the listeners and the readers that through Jesus Christ, God was beginning something new, which we understand as the new creation. But the significance of the placement Within the genealogy, cannot be understated, of course. Jesus would mark the beginning of a new age on earth. The kingdom which God gave to Adam, the kingdom which is is shown within the beginning of Genesis, which was lost because of sin. And by sin, in comes the kingdom of darkness. And now, throughout. From Genesis all the way through to Matthew is this story of parallel kingdoms in conflict with each other. So the kingdom which Adam lost, the kingdom which Adam was created into but lost by sin, that kingdom Jesus was establishing again on earth. And so Matthew's choice of Genesis to begin his story speaks not only of the genealogy, but it also speaks of what would immediately follow. With a brilliant double entendre, the Genesis, not just the genealogy, but the story that Matthew was about to tell. The story of the new creation, the story of the king, the story of the restoration of the kingdom on earth The story of a new humanity, the story of a new people group who look different, who live different, who reflect the rule, who occupy the territory, who resemble the values, the system of the kingdom, etc., etc. That's what Matthew is saying as he sets out. Jesus, the anointed king, from a royal lineage would establish his kingdom And although the origins begin in the garden, Abraham was the man through whom the prophecy in Genesis 3.15 would really begin. We're all familiar with Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 is God's statement after the fall of creation, after the fall of humanity. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Speaking to the serpent, God prophesies of the Messiah immediately post-fall, post-sin entering into the world. Here's this picture of what God would do, now realized at this moment, as Matthew writes through Jesus Christ. Matthew begins his story by showing that Jesus is the continuation of Israel's story. He's the continuation. By beginning with Abraham, he shows that Jesus is in line with Abraham's promise that that which was promised to Abraham, which we're going to look at here more within the next few minutes, Jesus is a continuation of that very thing. So, in Abraham is, and I want to. These are the three, and we're going to look at Abraham, David, and Jesus. Those three from this genealogy, because I think by looking at those three, we can get. A good enough perspective as to Matthew's intention, at least within the amount of time that we have. So in Abraham, the idea of the power, again, using our definition of what the kingdom is, it's the, king, it's the king's power over the king's people and the king's place, and including his presence and his law or his precepts. So in Abraham, this idea of the people, of the place, of the power, of the presence All of it is seen for the first time since the garden. So we have the garden and we have the two kingdoms running parallel with each other. God preserving, God continuing. We know, of course, what happened with Noah. God begins again. And then Abram comes into the scene. And God calls Abraham. And so for the first time since the garden, we see this imagery of the kingdom resurrect itself. And so Matthew begins there because Matthew knows that his readers and his hearers will understand the significance of Abraham the father of the faith, right? Genesis 12 verse 1 we see the blessings promised to the earth through Abraham. The power of the king. The power of the king. Genesis 15:17 the land that was sworn to him, there's that territory. Genesis 12, 2, the nation which was promised, the people whom God promised would come from him. There is that picture, again, of kingdom people. Each a picture foreshadowing of this kingdom that would one day come in its fullness through Jesus Christ. And then in addition, in in Genesis 14, Abraham is shown in a kingly fashion, in a kingly figure. When Melchizedek comes and pays tribute and blesses Abraham before God. And so Abraham is elevated in this picture of a king. Melchizedek, the king of Salem. And then we know, of course, the Old Testament as, as, as God's preservation of this seed, which he promises in Genesis chapter 3.15, that, that we read a second ago, this, as he preserves this offspring Throughout the generations, in the Old Testament, we see Moses and we see the king hand down his law to his people. His precepts are given to his people. At Sinai, with the promise of what before them? The land. Of the promise of the land that he will take them into. The promise of this territory that he is taking them to. God's objective was always to establish his kingdom on earth. And the law was necessary to govern his people. Through God giving the law to Moses, his kingdom begins to advance through a people on earth. In addition, what was it that the law allowed It allowed the presence of God to be close to his people, to be with his people. The ceremonies, the ritual practices, the sacrifices that we see all throughout the Old Testament, they were all intended to echo God's kingdom design, to rule over and to dwell among his people. And the law that he gave was a means by which he could do that with his nation, with his people whom he called. And of course, as I said, there's so many more within here, but we come to the end of the first 14, and it says, Jesse, the father of David, the king. Interesting article usage there. Not a king, but the king. And of course, we know now with this, with David, the kingdom imagery is so much more explicit. It's not as, it's not as nuanced, it's not as difficult to see, but we have God establish an earthly king. And David is often looked at as the king by which all other kings would be compared to. And of course, we know that the same promises that God promised to Abraham, those promises were also given to David. In 2 Samuel, we see a recording of that. We also see that at the end of 1 Chronicles, this promise. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let's look at it quickly, and I'm going to come into land here and I hope I haven't gone too quick that I've lost anyone or confused anyone. But again, my desire is to show that this concept, this idea, this truth of the kingdom of God has always been in the heart of God. And that you and I today find our place within that kingdom narrative. 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is God's covenant with David. And let's begin in verse 8. 2 Samuel, comes right before 1 Kings, chapter 7, beginning in verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to David, my servant, this is the Lord God, and he's speaking to the prophet Nathan, and he tells Nathan to say this to the king David. You shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on earth. There's that kingly picture. And I will appoint a place for my people, there's that territory, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people, Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring. Now look, he's shifting in his prophecy, in his covenant. I will fulfill. When your days are fulfilled, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And so here in God's covenant in Second Samuel with David, we see the same things that were promised to Abraham, this people, this, this place, this territory that he would give. The power that was promised are all here in David as well. And it was David who brought the ark back to Jerusalem. The presence of God. (laughs) Right? David brings the ark back to Jerusalem. The ark, the presence of God, back to his city. Back to a dwelling place. And David's heart was to build a permanent house for the presence of God. But we know that the Lord wouldn't allow it. And God said, no, it will be your son who will build this house instead. And even though his covenant with David, even through his covenant with David, God is looking beyond to his offspring. One who would come from his own body, a kingdom, whom he, the Lord, would establish. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne forever. And here is a picture of this kingdom theology of Jesus Christ, the one whom Matthew of course, ends with. And as as the prophets, as it continues, and the prophets point to this, and they speak of it. In Isaiah, we know well, in Isaiah chapter 11, he speaks of the stump of Jesse and the root that would come from the stump of Jesse. And who was Jesse? But David's father. And so the prophets speak to this kingdom narrative. And they speak of what will, and they foreshadow, and they point towards, and they say, look towards Do not miss what God is doing despite being deported and exiled in Babylon. Do not miss God's eternal purpose. What God has always determined would be his kingdom here on earth. And Isaiah says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and speaking of the stump from which the root shall bear fruit, And the spirit of wisdom and understanding and the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, righteousness, he says in Isaiah chapter 11, shall be the belt of his waist and the faithfulness the belt of his loins. Jesus Christ. Matthew's record continues with so many more men and women. He's got adulterers. He has prostitutes, murderers. Paul, why? Why do you think Matthew chooses such a wide variety of people? Such a a decorative background of those whom he would state. It's to show that the that the plan of God for the kingdom establishment was not because due to anything that man would do or preserve. It was to show that God, despite human weakness, God was doing something. God's plan would continue. God would have his way of establishing his earthly kingdom. That's why these men and women's names are in here. To show despite us, in spite of the things that we do, God will establish that which he purposes. Would not be of man's doing. And as he closes, and we'll close here as well, he he closes with Jesus Christ. And, of course, we know in Jesus Christ, as it was foreshadowed, as it was alluded to, we see again the power. Of course, we know all authority has been given to Jesus Christ. The power is given to him. The people are given to him. The Israel, Israel, the nation of Israel, the, the Gentiles are grafted in. They're brought into the covenant that God gave with Israel, of which we are now a part And that picture of the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven in Revelation, that's God's people, it's his church. The presence of God, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us, the the indwelling of the Spirit of God within his church. And of course we know that this new creation, this new kingdom, would no longer have the law written on stones, but it would be written upon our hearts. And the presence of God indwells us and it indwells us as a church. And now we as a people, we live in this kingdom. And so the the idea of a continuation, that Jesus is just a continuation of Israel's story is so important because you and I now stand over here. If that was Abraham and David and Jesus, here we are and we find ourselves today in the exact same story with the same thrust and the same emphasis that Jesus had with establishing his kingdom. And we have it here. And so, you guys, we look different. And so, some of these issues of, gosh, I just don't want to do this and I need to do that, they become moot because it's about the king and his rule. And it's about the presence of God within us and the law of God being made manifest both in our hearts and through us by the Holy Spirit. And, let me just show you this, because I know that I'm known for my absolutely fabulous keynotes. As Rick was speaking last week, I had this picture. This was the picture I had. The outer circle is the kingdom of God. That which has always been. The inner circle is the kingdom of the age. It's that which as sin came into the world, as I said, through Adam was established. And here in the center, we have this kingdom of God on earth that I'm speaking of right now. And I saw this picture of it piercing. The kingdom of God pierced through Jesus Christ. It pierced the kingdom of the age. And it established his earthly kingdom here. And you and I now are in that inner orangey, burnt orange, red circle. And we are piercing the kingdom of the age. And we're not shrinking back. We're not afraid. We're not fearful. We're not frightened. But we take the law of God. We reflect the law of God. We, through the grace of God and the spirit of God, the power of the king is effective in our life and through our lives and through his church. And so we are a part of this peculiar and different people. And as I began with, a holy nation, a royal priesthood from the lineage of David, from the lineage of Abraham through Jesus Christ. We're something different. And so I want to end with just a single question, and this is it. Which kingdom will you build? Which kingdom will you build? Will you build that which is of the present evil age, as Paul tells us, or will you build that which is of the king? And if it's of the king then it behooves us to understand what that looks like and how we are to build it. And so as we endeavor through the book of Matthew, that's what we will look at. Now, what does this look like? What does this look like for this peculiar, different, otherly people to pierce the kingdom of this age? Would you stand with me, please, as we end? Father, we thank you for just the absolute beauty and the profundity of your plan on earth. Lord, we are, we are glad to be a part of it. Father, we're thankful. We hold none of it as our own. We hold none of it as, as that which we've secured, Lord, but as we've seen, it has always been within your heart to do this very thing. And so, Lord, we ask today that you would, through this time, just build within us a sense of distinctiveness, that you would, you would build within us, Lord, a passion for being otherly, a people to reflect something other than what this rule of this age reflects, Lord God. And I pray, Father, for those of us who find ourselves one foot in and one foot out, drawn back to the kingdom of the age, Lord, by the desires of our hearts, that we would find ourselves enamored with the king of the kingdom of God. And therefore, the desire to serve and again reflect and to honor Lord God. We ask for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to help us in this matter. And Lord, I pray that this church would be a church for the kingdom in the city of Sacramento. That we would pierce the spirit of the age, Lord God, by the truth of the words that we speak and by the visible witness of the lives that we live. Lord, I pray that we would no longer live as those who are of the world, but Lord, let us live as those who are of the kingdom of God. I pray that our hearts' desires, that the trajectory of our life, that the things that we seek after, Lord, would be of you. And as we stood today as a community and and committed to support family, Lord, I pray that our children would be raised as children of the kingdom of light, that they would be taught from a young age that it looks different, that they live different, that we act different, that we spend our money in different places and that we value things that are different that are not what the world says are valuable. Help us, Lord God, to raise families who are kingdom families, to have homes that are kingdom homes, Lord, that are a part of the territory of the king that we invite people into and let us see it all within this mission of this community, Lord to take the gospel. And so we pray, Father, for both a visible witness and the verbal testimony that it would go from this community in a powerful way. In the name of Jesus Christ and by your grace, we say amen.